0: The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to see how much you might add to your bottom line.
1: Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. But you already knew that. Got a great topic for you today, and it's got some real meat to it based on what's going on. We're talking about climate. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about the weather. We've got a great guest. His name is Eric Snodgrass, 13-year professor at University of Illinois, and now some sort of crazy big title, principal, (laughs) atmospheric scientist, climatological (laughs) researcher, some damn thing like
2: that with uh, Nutrient. Eric, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think they gave me that title to make me feel important, even though all I really do is just the weather.
1: It's almost one of those, Eric, that you've got to then put it on both the front and the back of the business card. It's that (laughs) long of a title. Yeah. So uh, real quickly... Um, We're going to talk about all things weather and climate, which are not the same thing, as we all know. It depends on the political debate. Sometimes when it's a hot day in July, uh, the people that are telling you that we all need to have higher taxes say, see how hot it is? It's climate change. You say, I thought weather wasn't climate. You just told us that the other day when it was cold. Anyway, so uh, you're a weather guy Mm -hmm. and you're going to cover all these things uh, real quickly. Give me the background on you. I said, professor, turned in corporate, you're working
2: for Nutrien now, um, what What are you doing? Sure, so uh, like I said, I was a professor at University of Illinois for a long time and along the way started a couple small companies. What inspired me to get into ag uh, was the drought of 2012. That was a big one for me, uh, living here in Illinois. Nutrients scooped up both of my companies in 2018. Said, "Hey, you want to come over and 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 be kind of the face of what we do for a while and do a lot of forward-facing stuff with clients and employees?" I said, "You know what? Sounds like a good idea." And I've had a ball ever since then.
1: Your actual uh, degrees—obviously, you have a PhD. You are a meteorology.
2: Um, What's the degree in? Yeah. So so it's interesting. I am one of these all but defended PhDs. I sold my PhD. So oh. here I was. Yeah. So what happened was I was working away on uh, finished the master's and they immediately asked me to start teaching. And uh, so I got into this director position teaching. So I had all my coursework done. I was working on my dissertation. I'm like, you know what? This dissertation topic, I was doing seasonal forecasting. I found an insurance company that wanted to buy that model off of us. So I sold it, went to go start the new PhD topic, and I'm like, I'm getting into this whole entrepreneurial starting companies thing, and I just ran with it. And it turned out the university was extremely supportive of that because I was landing students' internships, I was bringing in research dollars, and we were just flying, and so along the way, you know, things just kept going in that direction. And so, yeah, I've, I've got it all done, but I sold it. And therefore you can't publish it as a, as a PhD thesis anymore. <laughs> got it.
1: So uh, yeah. I like it. These the, we- is the weather man turned uh, entrepreneur. And I think that's <laughs> fantastic. So we're I promised, uh, you know, we're going to talk all things, weather, and I think it's really important for our listeners and viewers, we're going to cover not only all climate topics, but what it means for ag, what changes mm-hmm. we're going to see, what regulations we may see, what policies we uh, will see implement. Implemented or pushed or put proposed, and uh, what it's it, going to do to our industry. So that's what we're covering here in this episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast with my special guest, Eric Snodgrass. I want to remind you, dear listener, that you can also view the Business of Ag podcast. Go to the Damien Mason channel on YouTube. Go to YouTube, just type in Damien Mason channel. Please subscribe while you're there. It'll help me get more viewers and more people can see and hear this great stuff. Also, I always encourage you to share these podcasts with your non-ag people because we do a really good job of informing and my guests do a really good job of informing non-ag people about what's going on in our industry. Uh, Also, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that I've got an awesome sponsor, the one you heard about in the recording before this episode, that's Land Trust, but I have another sponsor who's been with me for over a year and that is Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is a software solution for your agricultural enterprise. You've got dollars in, dollars out, different farms, all these different capital expenditures, all this capital the assets you've got to manage. What's your software doing to help you manage all of these ins and outs and assets and all this stuff? You need a financial software that helps your business be profitable. Go to harvestprofit.com and check out what products they have. You can even get a free 14-day trial. All right. More than any other industry, our business is affected by what happens outside the window, the weather. Uh, Is the climate changing, Eric Snodgrass?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been observing here across the country, uh, for more than a century, what what is happening systematically with our weather systems. And we look at those data kind of average amount on a 30 year time scale and we look for shifts and we, we can see these shifts and define them. And what's great about that is that the information we get from that can go directly into the hands of the farmer to help them make decisions on how longer term change could affect things. So uh, absolutely. And uh, when we look through all the data and comb through it and study it, uh, some of the signals that pop out are, are quite clear that these changes Stuff we need to be thinking about every day in order to continue to be profitable in this industry. We say um, we've been keeping good records for about maybe 130 years. Is that sound yep. right? Like late 1800s. Yeah. So the most reliable records we have from some weather stations, and a lot of these were put in by military, uh, go back to about 1893. Before that, um, data collection was very sparse, of course, across the country. But since then we've been able to kind of reconstruct historical records. And you know, nowadays we have over 15,000 weather stations across the country that are monitored by the government. Plus we have 160 radars and the best satellite network on the face of the earth, keeping track of our weather. And uh, we've honestly had that in place since the eighties. So we've got, we've got 40 years of super high tech in our observations, plus go back another ninety, and you've got some some fantastic data there to analyze. Okay, so let's
1: go back. Let's go back uh, just one hundred you know years ago when when things sure. really started changing. When ag got really good, you know, we hybridized mm-hmm. corn, we started using tractors instead of uh, draft mules. Uh, you know, things got really good. So back there, hundred to one hundred twenty years ago, uh, I'm told we're about a degree Fahrenheit warmer on average than we were then, and we're a bit wetter.
2: Yeah. Explain, please. Uh, it depends on which side of the uh, mountains you're on. So so the degree warmer, yeah, we're about a degree and a half warmer during that time. A, and degree, and a, that, a degree and a half Fahrenheit, yeah. not a degree and a half centigrade. Right. Okay. So when you think about what that means... Think about it in context like this. So I'm looking out here. I live in Champaign, Illinois, and we are flat as could be. I mean, this is, this is the flattest place on the earth, in my opinion. Our local uh, mountain chains are called overpasses, right, in our part of the world. <laughs> so, so one of the reasons why the landscape looks like this, there's, there's many reasons, but we, we had a lot of glacier activity back here about 20,000 years ago. Okay. When, when I, where I was sitting, we had a several hundred foot thick chunk of ice 20,000 years ago. To put that number one and a half degrees in context, globally, the temperature was about four degrees colder than it is today. So Earth's temperature is very sensitive inside of a, a very small range. Now we're talking about an average temperature for the whole planet. So when we see this increase of one and a half degrees, you know historically, that's been the quickest rise in temperature uh, that we've observed uh, You know looking back through Earth's geological past. And so we asked the question you just asked, what in the world does this mean and where where is it going? And I, I mentioned to you that we need to split the country a bit because the rate of change of temperature is much greater in the West than it is here in the East. And that's a really cool factor that happens when you start to study how the atmosphere flows, okay? So in a nutshell, this is what we are observing. One of the canaries in the coal mine, if you will, for change is the North Pacific. It has taken in an enormous amount of heat, and the warmer that it becomes, the more the jet stream just wants to run over the top of it. If it runs over the top of that and goes up into Alaska, British Columbia, and over the west, they get the heat. But because of the typical wavelength of a jet stream trough ridge pattern, it dips over the Great Lakes. So here we are on this side of the mountains. You said we're getting wetter? Absolutely. In the, in the primary corn and soybean belt, over the last 70 years, we have increased April to October precipitation by five and a half inches.
1: April to October here where you and I live, Midwest. Yep. Um, five and a half inches more rain in that April to October time. Then season.
2: back in the '40s and '50s. Yep. That okay. that's the longer-term trend. That's straight out of NOAA's sets. Okay. Here's
1: uh, a question.
2: Hmm? Um, isn't that good for crop production? <laughs> well, certainly in the near term, it's been fantastic. Uh, we've, we've increased rainfall and also increased the length of our growing season. I mean, you and I, we get to travel the country and speak to growers. And I remember I was in South Dakota. This is a couple of years ago, about 600 in the audience. And I, I got the great question about this. And I said, well, just how many of you are multi-generational farmers? And I had them raise their hands. And I said, all right, when did grandpa want to plant corn? And yeah. they're like, uh, you know, after June 1st, that's that all we a, could do. Yeah. Right. yeah. When, do you, when did dad plant corn? Ah, he had to be in by May 15th. And when, when do you want to plant corn? Yeah, if April I can 30. plant it April 15th, I'm in, you know? And I said, well, the thing about these changes we've seen, what does that degree and a half afford you? Well, it's primarily coming in overnight low temperatures. And if the warming's happening in overnight low temperatures, you're putting your last frost date further and further back in the year. Yeah, And therefore, we're opening things up a little earlier. Now, The last two years, I mean, shoot, 2020, the frost in the eastern part of the Corn Belt, where Fort Wayne, Indiana, hit 18 degrees Fahrenheit last May. What was that? May 9th or 10th? Those things still happen. That's weather. That's the annual variability. But we look at that longer term shift. We bought about 10 days right here in our two states of. uh, yeah, So
1: that's what I was going to say is that uh, and I do I I do because I do lean a little to the right and i Mm -hmm. have had these people that say we need more laws we need more regulation climate change and i said well do you even know difference you know because when it when it was a hot summer in 1988 um it was uh the beginning of this whole thing about uh uh, global warming but then also the summer of 1992 um i don't think i wore a swimsuit in the summer of (laughs) 1992. so you know there's that thing and by the way you talk about the the frost uh at night we had frost here in northeast indiana on um it was may 17 18 i believe uh 15 yeah may 15 i think in that time frame we had we had overnight frost which is about maybe 10 days later than our normal yeah three date.
2: yeah and 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 that can happen year to year and uh and and so what we do is when we think about climate the, the 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 smallest denominator over which you can average the the, the weather's thirty years. So we look at these long-term shifts, and so it's kind of like bouncing all over the place every year. But if it's if the whole wave packet is going this way or this way, that's what we want to study. And you know, you're right. Uh, the 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 politics side of it is going to give you so many different flavors of all of this. And sometimes they just step back and say, I don't I don't even care. The data nerd inside of me says, if this is what's happening, I got to put this in the hands of the grower. Mm-hmm. So that if there's a longer term shift in a decision that needs to be made, let's go after it.
1: OK, so um, we think we're about a, uh, one and a half degrees Fahrenheit warmer than we were, say, turn of the century. And I'm talking 1890s to 1900s. Um, yep. And we're getting five inches more rain than we did 70 years ago, because you're going back to the 40s when we had pretty good science. You know, it's World War Two yep. era, et cetera. <laughs> um, warmer equals better for food production. Um, wetter, frankly, you know, if you're in... Uh, uh, we have the issue here where we put in drainage ditches and tile because we have plenty of moisture, but yeah. it's always that thing of, we've got more water than we need in March, April, May generally. And then we uh, we've got uh, not enough of it in July and August, typical kind of thing. So I don't see this being bad for ag, but there probably is a downside. Um, and I'm thinking uh, bugs, um, is it is it true that this one and a half degrees difference does it mean that we're gonna have worse bugs because we'll have as colder winters? Is there anything to that?
2: There is some stuff to that. And what we worry about in terms of bugs and and even let's go to add vegetation to that is that you know, the ships allow for an expansion of a suitable habitat for certain invasive species and certain bugs that can get farther to north or you know, survive a winter without, you know, an extremely deep freeze. Uh, so there's certainly concern about that. And I'll tell you, in the United States, that concern is, is, I would say, minimalized over what you see in other growing areas. For so, for example, in China, India, Africa, and even and especially down in Australia, those shifts, they are they're more susceptible to these issues in the first place. So now the migration of some of these insects, and we've we've got it in some good peer-reviewed publications, are are starting to just uh, be something that you now have to do more management of where in the past it wasn't an issue to to manage. Uh, But yeah, you know, you mentioned the good and I'll be honest with you, if if you just said Snodgrass, take a step back and objectively give me an answer, has the change up to this point been good? Well, you all know that yield trend for corn, soybeans, you know, growing right here, most of that trends technology, but weather is helping that out in a big way. The question we ask ourselves is, does it just keep going for the next century in that direction? Right. And that's where we start to run into some concerns. So I'll, I'll say this, and, and, and that would be, most of our additional heat we have here is in those overnight lows. Yeah. When we start to run the risk of having a lot of July and August overnight lows that can't get below 70. Well, we know what that does to a corn crop. It it doesn't allow the corn to stop respiration at night. It doesn't allow for resting and we could start to be in trouble, but that could be uh, where we would risk that in Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, you know, that could still be 15, 20, 30 more years into the future before we start to bump into that every night. And we have to ask, are we going to shift? Are we going to start planting at that point in early April, such that we avoid it. And, and those are the questions. And what do we do in agriculture? We continually adapt adapt, and strategize right. and, and mitigate risk. And so we look for those sources of solutions against these things, but the background state is changing and you've defined it there with those numbers.
1: I uh, actually, I'll give you some other numbers. Um, you talked about South Dakota. Um, mm-hmm. My friends think that I'm more famous than uh, Jerry Seinfeld in uh, the Dakotas. I work <laughs> there all the time. And yeah. you know what? Those South Dakotans and North Dakotans, for even more so, used to be like they had two things, you know, snow and some wheat. And, um, you know, if there is truth to this whole thing that um, we're getting a better growing season because we're hanging around with lesser, you know, nights, all of a sudden, This ground, farm ground up there. I was like, you got no business planting corn and soybeans up here in North Dakota, for God's (laughs) sakes. Uh, I said, let us do that down in the corn belt and keep my cash rent high because you don't need to be making this kind of money up here. So um, it's probably been positive for them. But, you know, that's also hybridization and genetically engineered crops and a whole bunch of technology. I don't think the degree and a half is the reason all of a sudden that we're growing soybeans in North Dakota. Uh, It, it, It helps. It
2: helps. It helps. And, and, you know, you think about those acreage increases. What, What is it? I think since 1990, they've added, what, 7 million acres of corn and soybeans in North Dakota? And they're growing it in Canada as well, where they used to grow wheat, barley, canola, and, and legumes.
1: Yeah, and I don't like uh, the Canadians. I, I mean, I'm going to put <laughs> it out here that I think them, them Canadians should just leave the corn and the soybeans. To, you know what? Stick with snow and oats, all right, Canada? All right. <laughs> I got to pick on I got to pick on You know I love the Canadians? And you know what's bad is you and
2: I haven't been able to go there for the last 15 months, right? I know. Last time I was there, I was in Saskatchewan, uh, in Saskatoon, back in 2019, and then since then haven't returned. But uh, I love love the Canadians. Just don't forget nutrients based out of Calgary. So (laughs) I had to pick on them. And I did know that
0: about your company
2: and I've I've worked there a bunch.
1: You know, what's interesting is uh, when someone said, okay, you're not traveling much with all this whole pandemic stuff going on. I said, yeah. And they said, do you miss it? And I said, I do because it keeps me fresh. And and you and I both like getting in front of live audiences. You talk about the weather. I talk about ag issues in a funny way. Um, And then I said, uh, well, you know, you'll be back at it. And I said, that's the thing how many more years do I want to? I said, let me tell you about my last trip to Alberta. It was of course, wintertime because you only ever go to these Canadian provinces in the winter. Right, Eric, they only have oh, yeah. us there for speed. It's like, why don't you have an ag conference in July? I've never seen Alberta in July. Okay. I've only seen it November to February. Yeah. Um, I was, I, I, of course, one of those deals where to get between two speaking engagements, I'm like up all night traveling. So I'm in, it's like midnight and I'm driving on the highway in Alberta, I don't know, somewhere between Red Deer and, uh, you know, Edmonton or something. And uh, I come over a rise, it's snow and ice, black ice is the people like to call it. Anyway, it's ice on asphalt, yeah. snow, some wind, and then a semi-trailer in front of me is jackknife. So I've had oh. no sleep. It's midnight. It's dark, ice, snow, wind, and a semi-trailer. After I come over a rise and I start, I'm like, oh my God. So I start putting it down in low because a smart person never hit the brakes, right? Don't ever hit the <laughs> brakes. On ice. I'm, I'm gearing down into low, foots off the gas. And then I'm like, holy shit, a deer, a deer is also in the highway. I'm like, you know, what's next? Lightning is lightning coming next. Oh, so yes. Yes. I, we, you, as you said, we love Canada.
2: It's not an easy place to love sometimes, though, is it? No, they, they boy, they can have some of the craziest weather uh, up there. And uh, you're right about those conditions. Uh, just perilous at times. Yeah. And um, then
1: another time, of course, I actually took a picture uh, for social media Mike, I don't think most people um, have been out where it is truly it was negative 30. I think it was ambient temperature was negative 30. And, you (laughs) are plugging your car in. Uh, So. All right. So uh, this is Eric Snodgrass. Great topic about climate. We're going to be talking more about some of the practical implications, what that means. But I want to remind you here at the Midway Point that this episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit's a company that was founded by Nick Horeb. Nick, not even a software engineer, just a smart <laughs> entrepreneurial guy that said, you know what ag needs, ag enterprises need a software solution that works as hard as they do to be profitable. So he invented software products for agriculture specifically. You could go to harvestprofit.com, read of some of Nick's articles and see if they have a product that'll work for you. I'm sure they will. A bunch of my listeners and viewers have become customers uh, and they're very happy and you will be too. All right, Eric Snodgrass. Joe Biden, I know that we're not gonna get political, you're not gonna get political, it's okay if I do. Joe Biden was speaking to the Coast Guard Academy last week. Um, and uh, in between forgetting what he was saying and reading his teleprompter, he did say uh, that we have 35 named storms last year, more hurricanes than we've ever had before. I don't know if that's true because I don't really count hurricanes uh, you know, on an annual basis. And they claimed that that's because of climate change. Is this true, A, number one? And two, if so, would is there some way we can make hurricanes go away?
2: <laughs> I, love the, I love the second question. Uh, you know, I used to, when I was teaching at the U of I, I always got some of the greatest ideas from some of my students because, you know, ultimately the hurricane is going to feed off of, of warm ocean. I, it's just this, in, in, in scientific terms, it's a large Carnot cycle. So if anybody's listening and study some physics, they're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. So the more heat we pump into them, the bigger and badder they become. Okay, so some solutions. I love these. I've heard multiple times, let's just nuke the suckers and blow them up. Like, no, 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 no. You drop a nuclear weapon in there, it's going to eat it for lunch (laughs) and it's going to spread the nuclear fallout all over the place because Uh a typical hurricane in a day, get this number ready, in a day, a typical hurricane releases more energy than 600,000 fat man bombs remember that from 1945 okay so secondly not, they said why we just way, those, we, we're not in any way being derogatory to people no. that are <laughs>
1: challenged there were two bombs dropped in japan one was yeah. called like skinny lady and one was called fat man a right? little
2: boy fat little, man a little boy,
1: little boy yeah. and fat man and there's the two bombs that we dropped on uh, nagasaki and hiroshima uh yeah. and and certainly we're not making a jest of that because a lot of people were killed but that was the first uh that's a, well we never saw anything like it in fact there's there's argument made that those bombs changed the weather there because of what
2: happened. Yeah. And and, and a funny side story on that. Uh, The bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki, there was a young uh, Japanese scientist who was studying uh, uh, the blast radius. He actually took his research and came over to the University of Chicago in the 1950s and started to equate the blast radius of the nuclear bombs with the same kind of wind damage we were getting from tornadoes, ratios, uh, some squall lines and downbursts studied it through the 70s Ended up doing so much research he developed a scale by which we rank tornadoes and this guy i'm talking about is dr ted fujita so interestingly enough the day that the bomb was dropped in nagasaki he was supposed to be there uh, excuse me he was supposed to be in the initial city excuse me there was another city that it was going to get dropped in but that city was not chosen because it was too cloudy and they couldn't get the site lined up, so they chose city number two, which is Nagasaki, sparing his life. He becomes a U.S. citizen and saves so many of us with tornado research. What a beautiful story here! A very but good, but a very good story. Yeah. So, a uh, hurricane you're saying has six hundred times the oh my goodness of power, six hundred times the amount of power as the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima. Oh yeah, easily, easily, and that's all in just the production of clouds and wind. So you, you come back to the statement here. Uh, So we had 30, 30 named systems last year. And was that a lot? Absolutely. How much total accumulated energy was in all of them? Uh, It didn't surpass some of the big bad years like like 2005. Remember, that's when we had Katrina and those other hurricanes. But what fueled last year was the fact we had a La Nina in the Pacific, lowering the wind shear in the Atlantic and warm ocean temperatures. And anytime that combination comes together, we see a lot of tropical cyclone activity. So the big underlying question is, are we seeing a systematic change in the ocean temperatures with time, meaning that when hurricanes do form, they could be more powerful? And we would say, yeah, in the main development region between Africa and the United States, those ocean temperatures are warming. And what that translates into is when systems do form, They have more energy to extract and therefore do what we don't want them to do, which is to slow down and produce more rain and flooding. A lot of folks do not realize that the greatest threat of a hurricane is the flooding rain.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, think
2: back to uh, Harvey hitting Houston. Yeah, like 60 inches of rain came like in five days. Yeah, it was five days, 60 inches of rain. You know where we live. That's 130% of our annual rainfall. Yeah, we get about 40
1: inches of rain here yeah. a year, and you're talking about five days, you're getting 50% more than that, right? Exactly.
2: <clears throat> so so those are the kind of longer term things. And you know, speaking to the Coast Guard, I'll, I'll just make one comment about it. You know, when we think about this broader topic of climate change, regardless of of, of the political situation, the United States government, through the through our armed services, has had a plan in place for over, I think it's over 30 years on how they have to be strategic with climate shift issues simply because if they don't plan and strategize, I mean they don't care why it's changing. It's changing. They've observed it. They have to adjust. And to be honest, that's the same strategy I think a lot of farmers use. Hey, if there's change, I gotta know about it. Cause if I don't adjust, I get left in the dust and this doesn't work going forward. So yeah, it's it's um you know it's a very, very uh, it's a strategic decision to be made on the change and what you do to continue to be profitable. And I think that's the biggest question.
1: Are there more hurricanes because of
2: a changing climate though? You you, you didn't answer that. Sure. So when we look at the longer term research, uh, we go back, we have pretty good records going back to the satellite era. Remember, remember this before that, all we have is ship reports out in the Atlantic to tell us what's right. out there. Right. So satellite era, call it 1980 to present. We have actually seen in the Atlantic um, a slight decrease in total number of systems, but the ones that are category three and higher are, are, are increasing. Okay. So it's interesting. It, it, but the, the change is almost flat, to be honest with you.
1: So we really aren't having, you don't think we're actually having more hurricanes than, than we did 100 years ago? We're having a different kind? They're stronger. Okay. Yep. Um, let's talk about ag, since this obviously is all the, you know, it's what we're here for, is talk about the business of agriculture. Uh, are we to blame? <laughs> and we, we, we tend to be a target now. We're in the crosshairs. I think we're also used as a political lever. Uh, yeah. We are used as a straw man or a really uh, convenient lever. Um, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez believes that her followers want her to be anti-cheeseburgers, then she'll say that cows are killing us. Are we to blame?
2: Uh the, the the largest answer, the biggest answer to that is uh, is 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 no. And let me tell you the reasons why I would say, no, we are not to blame. Uh, OK, so so agricultural productivity is the livelihood of the planet. Mm-hmm. We have to grow the food, the fiber and the fuel we need to thrive as as a, as a species on this planet. So it's out of necessity. We do what we do. Is it intensive? Absolutely. Do we change the land? Of course we do. That's how you grow food at the scale we grow and feed at the scale we grow. Uh, But the net effect is we are we're growing something. And as a consequence, the net effect of producing biomass is to extract carbon from the atmosphere. Right now, you you, you know, but we, we also, you know, remember through the production of fertilizer and the use of it through the fact we have to drive a tractor through the field to make this all happen. Sure. We 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 consume and therefore produce carbon dioxide. And and, and that is why there's so many companies and strategies out there to minimize that and to monetize that. But to say there's blame, to, to be honest, I'll step back and just say the blame needs to be widely shared among all industries and all people, and you're right. We sometimes, I, f- I feel this very much, are unfairly targeted. And I think it may come back to the fact that we may not take the time and effort to provide the correct narrative right. to combat the misinformation. And and that that is a that's going to be an ongoing challenge uh, 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 for a very long time. It's who's loudest, right? right, right. <laughs> and how many farmers do you know go out there and just start shouting <laughs> about things? We, we don't right right okay environmentally
1: um i'd say that we're doing better for uh, the world than we ever have we're using less natural resources per calorie of food produced than has ever happened you know we used to have to have a, a 1800 pound draft horse uh you know out here to produce a, a few bushels of corn per acre look what we're doing now with our equipment so from an environmental standpoint i I'd, I'd say we're doing well if it's about carbon we could probably do better by using cover crops because then you've got all that uh, acreage that's now absorbing CO2 out of the atmosphere, am I right?
2: Sure, yeah, it, it more you, the longer you keep something growing there, that's the, that's the net effect. Okay, so what else do you think we will be doing in agriculture from
1: an environmental standpoint, either because it's just smart for us to do or because we're gonna be forced to do so?
2: Yeah, I think, I think the first, response is the most important, because what are we looking for? We're looking at ways to become more efficient to get more out of what we do. That ends up driving the technology that drives the the innovation. And I think that's what's going to ultimately start to just peel back on the total emissions that we have. So we, we're all about the industry is about reduction of, of emissions naturally. I mean, just anyways, because by doing so, we save money. Now, that's aside from the fact that there is this emerging carbon credit market that's also going to be there as well. Uh, well but, is, but is it gonna be there? I believe it's gonna well. be there, but <laughs> right now it's still the Wild West.
1: We've we've had an episode on this very show about that. I know there are two farmers that have so far, two, two out of the 3.3 million in the country, two that have actually gotten a
2: payment for carbon sequestration. Um, what's your prediction on that? You know. I would just look at some of the very large companies, I mean, Nutrien as an example, that have made substantial investments in developing what that looks like for the growers so that there is resiliency, there's emerging market, and so that we can be a part of the solution for these issues. You also have other extremely large companies that have made uh, uh, similar designations, and we have companies like Indigo Ag and other companies that are out there to create this. I think will ultimately be determined, its future success by the consumer. What I mean by that is, you will find that a lot of people shop for a story. They, they go buy something off the shelf that says, this thing did not have a massive impact on the environment. I will pay the premium for that. And, and you better believe Walmart puts it right at five foot seven eye level in, in the grocery store as well. So yeah. those things all work together, these natural market forces and these natural efficiency forces uh, to, 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 to provide a solution. And we in agriculture want to be the voice explaining that we automatically have to do the things that make us efficient, low emitting, because if we do, we are resilient. We take better care of our soil and more profitable. That's that's what. Top producers do.
1: Yeah, I agree with all that. So, and, and I think some of the stuff we're going to do anyhow, again, if you talk about cover crops, I believe we're going to, I've said it, I, I put it in my in my ag book. Um, mm-hmm. I talked about soil as a, as a wannabe agronomist that um, we're going to look back at all the, leaving our soil bare for seven months of the year. It's going to be like, boy, they used to use leeches for medical treatment also. I mean, that's how, how um, barbaric I think we're going to be or backward, we're going to look at that. So cover crops then are, not only protecting our soil, but also absorbing the CO2 if we're supposed to be decarbonizing the world. But then there's the issue of methane, which has 30 times longer staying power than CO2 or something I've read. Mm -hmm. And boy, my goodness, has it become very popular to to beat the hell out of bovine. Um, (laughs) You know, if you're a politician and you lean a certain direction politically, you want to get your people wound up, tell them that these big factory farms, these factory farms have these these cattle in them feeding them cattle grain that's what alexandria ocasio cortez called it cattle grain i'm not sure if that's traded on the cme or not cattle grain (laughs) and um uh it's because of cows so uh, are livestock farms
2: really causing us that much problem eric you know i think of it like this i have a i have a close friend that's a bit overweight and he told me last year that the way he's going to lose weight is to stop eating bread. Mm-hmm. But on his desk, he's got a jar about this big, chock full of M&Ms. <laughs> what he's missing here is the fact that if he wanted to lose weight, it's it's a calorie thing. He's missing the main point, is my opinion. So we come back to this question you pose about cattle. So do, do cattle produce methane? You better believe it when they chew up whatever they eat. Uh, through uh, the burp it back up, and that's just a part of that's a gestation uh, that's excuse, digestion in the cow. That's what it. Okay. Yep. So we look at this big picture methane, and we say how much of the methane emission is coming from, you know, cows. And when you look at it, it is it's a very very little tiny sliver of the total pie, mm-hmm. and. I look at it in the same way I look at my friend who's given up the bread but still eating the M and M's. Uh huh. So, so, so you're saying you're saying that we're targeting
1: we're it's it's miss it's the old thing about the person that goes through the buffet and puts eight thousand calories of food on her plate, and then drinks a diet coke. We're you got it. <laughs> the, 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 the cows do emit methane, but in the scope of things, it's it's a it's
2: it's targeting the wrong. it's targeting something that's really not. It's for the minuscule. I wouldn't say minuscule, but it is not the major producer of of methane. There are, you know, sources in industry, so many other things are methane emitters. And you're right, it's an extremely efficient greenhouse gas in terms of heat retention. So we have to keep an eye out on that, just like we do carbon dioxide. But but the the net effect is, I, I would like to just say this, the consumption of protein has been critical to the health of humans on our planet, right? and and to to to, to all of a sudden to, to target that mm-hmm. and say, stop, by just looking for something to target, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't make sense to me, and it doesn't make sense in the science.
1: No. So scientifically, it makes no sense. But as I pointed out, it's not even about the science. We both say it's about the science. It's not about the science. It's generally about the emotion or the seizing of political
2: power or using it for political gain. Is my observation. Sure, and i I'm going to look up those numbers and send them to you, so I can tell you exactly what that fraction looks like. But again, uh, it's it's. Um it's it's pointing the finger in the wrong direction in my Speaking opinion.
1: Speaking of pointing the finger in the wrong direction for political gain or power or profit, what, depending on what it is, Cory Booker's US Senator, I don't need your opinion on him, but he proposed that we should limit farm size, these CAFOs, these awful factory farms that have too many animals on them. So he proposed that we should limit no more than like 999 cows or steers on a feed yard or whatever. And I'm thinking, well, what the hell difference does it make if there's 10,000 cows there or 10,000 cows spread out between 10 places. Does it matter?
2: Yeah. You know, this would be getting a little bit outside my area of expertise, but if someone, anybody, not, not him, but anybody's going to make a statement like that, my first question would be, can you show me the peer reviewed literature that says that that would be the smartest decision? We (laughs) should, we should, we should all ask that of everybody. I mean, you you just
1: ask for for a career politician to give you
2: peer reviewed (laughs) research and logic
1: which we know never comes out of Washington, D.C. You speak to ag crowds all over North America. What do you tell them? Give me a couple of your big points. But well, you don't yeah. do so you've been doing it via Zoom call. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, are your, what are a couple of your points? Mr. You know,
2: necessary? in this vein of, 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 of climate and change, my the, the, the point I hammer home all the time is it, it's this simple. If you ask me, if we do everything possible to maintain extremely healthy soil, we are more resilient to the changes. Mm -hmm. I just gave a talk the other day in California. I mean, in California, I'm talking to a group of people that are in the middle of a state with 40 million people leads to the production of over 40 different fruits and vegetables and milk and has extremely strict policy, water restrictions and the, the rate of change of their climate far exceeds what we're experiencing on this side of the mountains. And I tell that to them. So they're getting hotter faster or drier faster. Or and way faster, yeah. I mean, I know this is, a, this is foreign to you and I being from right here, but in California, you wanna dig a well and hit water, you're gonna go down between 800 and 2000 feet. Their reservoirs, Lake Shasta, Lake Oroville, just checked on them yesterday. They're sitting at about 40% of full pool. And the resources that demand that water are tremendous. I talked to those farmers. said, what should you do? I said, I say you should maintain soil. They come back and say, absolutely, because the better we take care of the soil, better it takes care of us. That's the message I try to carry everywhere.
1: I appreciate that message. The thing with California though, there's a lot of political um, wrangling where um, some policies and some different um, regulations um, have, have made that worse. So is it, um, is it just a matter of hotter and drier
2: or is it also a matter of misallocation of the water? <laughs> Uh, no comment. <laughs> I, I'll just say that my my answer to you is that the climate shift is exacerbating other problems, mm-hmm. and and therefore Take, taking
1: care of the soil. Agreed. Um, cover crops is something I'm a big proponent of, and mm-hmm. um, uh, those are things that we we you know decarbonizing and and whatnot. What about the stuff that is being tossed about? What about the stuff that they are throwing around in Washington, DC? Limiting farm size is not gonna change it. You just said that, or I said that, and you agreed. Give me the peer review study. Um, taxing meat. Um, all that does is make meats more expensive. Um, what, what things are being tossed about that actually would be good for the environment? Regulations on how far we can drive, um, electric cars. uh, You know, what are we talking about here?
2: Well, my my mind first went to the electrification of the transportation system. Okay. Not from a policy perspective, not from a regulation perspective, but purely from a marketplace and consumer demand perspective. If should the electrification of our transportation network uh, increase, Yep. What it does is it reduces demand on liquid fuel, right? We still have to have energy to charge those batteries. It just comes from decentralized um, places. Uh, excuse me, uh, not decentralized, centralized Central. places. Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah.
1: Now, now to get my electric car to go, I've got to because some people think you just magically plug it into the wall and that wall just produces electricity. But it's not the wall that produces electricity. It's not the socket in the wall. It's, it's not the fuse panel in your basement. It is. There's a, coal, a power company—a coal or possibly a natural gas-fired, or maybe even nuclear-powered power plant. Right. Um, so yeah, we've, we've and it is centralized, as you say. Um, so electrifying the transportation sector which is not only tremendously
2: costly. Um, does it change the weather? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's the last well, one. I <laughs> the last one I
0: ask.
2: Yeah. So, so does it change the weather? Um, when we look at the, at the sources of carbon in in the atmosphere and therefore the resulting impacts on climate, the majority of it does come from industry and the production of power. It is not necessarily from the, the driving of, of large vehicles all over the place, spreading carbon dioxide, because most of what comes out of your tailpipe is, is water vapor. Okay. Uh, but what, what it would do is it would, it would shift around where we are emitting, to these centralized places, which means we'd have to increase demand. Will that increase in demand be met with an increase in solar power production or other forms? I don't know. If you ask me personally, because I used to teach a course on environmental sustainability about renewable and alternative energy at the University of Illinois. And if you ask me personally, I love the fact we're shifting to natural gas, and there's many reasons. One, it burns a whole lot, a whole lot cleaner than 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 coal 2 we've got it in spades in the United States. Mm -hmm. And and, and the third thing about it is, is that the transport of it and the use of it is it's, it's a much it's a much cleaner thing. Now, are there issues around the extraction of it? Oh, yeah. I'm not I'm not glossing over that. But as the transition happens to, because we did this before, right? We went from wood to coal, coal to oil, oil to natural gas, and there's going to be a progression forward to you know new new stuff. But I'd make this blanket statement about it. That transition will happen overnight. The moment that one of these things, a cell phone, remains charged for over a week at a time. That means the battery technology finally got to this place that it's there and then I mean, have you driven a truck with a thousand foot pounds of torque at zero RPM? I gotta admit, that's kind of fun. <laughs> uh you know, so there's gonna be attraction to this electric vehicle market with time, I think. Yeah, there probably will be. Any other things that we didn't cover,
1: any other weather or climatological issues that Eric Snodgrass wants to share with the listeners of the business of agriculture?
2: Yeah, I'll talk about this year in in, in just a moment. okay? so when I think about this year, we've lately had some halfway decent moisture return to the Corn Belt. It's not everywhere. There are some soil moisture problems kind of along I-80 all the way up into the Dakotas. The longer-term risk for this summer, I am not yet ready to to tell you that we've dodged a bullet with drought risk because for the first time in a very long time, actually going back about nine years, we've got some pretty cold water on the West Coast. And if you just handed me a map of ocean temperatures right now and said, Eric, you have to make a forecast off of this one thing for summer, I'd look at those cold temperatures on the West Coast and say, we have risk for regional drought development in the Midwest. And I want folks to stay aware of that because that could continue just to well, we know what markets have been doing lately, which has been volatile, but this is a source of risk in the supply side of things going forward. And I just want, I think we all need to keep a close eye on it. No, 2012 is not an analog to 2021, mm-hmm. but is there a risk of drought this upcoming summer? Uh, there is. I'm going to keep an eye on it. 2012
1: again, weather's not climate, but you, uh, you just, you've referenced 2012 a couple of times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm one of these guys, I, I am a farm guy at heart and I always make jokes about farmers love the weather, but 1988, Uh, I was working in a ceiling towel factory on the evening shift, which means the place Uh was all day and you go into this place (laughs) where they had ovens that were cooking ceiling tile at 350 degrees. Plus it was no kidding, 94 degrees outside pretty much every day for the summer and no rain. Um, and I was sleeping during the day in an old, unair-conditioned farmhouse where, where I lived with my parents because I was an 18-year-old boy. Uh, I bought my own air conditioner. In fact, I worked overtime, bought my own window air conditioner, so I could sleep during the daytime in a 110-degree house. Otherwise, and then 2012, um, I'm doing a gig in Michigan. I called home. I said, "Honey, it's 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 terrible." And she says, "I've got fans on the cattle." And I said, "What is it in Huntington, Indiana?" She says, "Honestly, I think it is 100 degrees outside." And the good thing is the humidity wasn't 85 or 90 percent like we sometimes have because there had been no moisture in the in the whole, you know, for two months. Yeah. We're not going to see that in 2021. We've been talking about subsoil moisture problems. in, uh, like you said, some of what I'd call the plains states. Um, you're thinking that this is because of the cold weather on the West or because the what's what's causing this potential dryness for pretty much a lot of the. United States and Canada.
2: Yeah, so so a lot of it happened at the end of winter. So we didn't get the snowpack coming out of the Canadian Prairie into the Northern Plains. That sent them off into drought. We then had, remember, at the end of last growing season, we had drought during harvest in October, uh, in September and October. And then in the Central Plains, Nebraska had its driest August on record. So we just didn't fix that through winter. Yeah, it was wet in Nebraska in uh, in March this year, but it didn't correct the longer-term problem. So what happened in 12 and in 88 or 80 and 83, those are years that just ring true with drought, right? We just saw that by this time in the summer, the jet stream just bumped up north of that 49th parallel and stayed there. And we tended to have just ridges dotting from the central Pacific over to the central Atlantic, shoving everything North. And if you want to have a good stormy summer, you've got to get the jet stream winds cranking over the top of you. If they're doing that in Canada, we get left out. And what do you end up getting? A pop-up storm that's three miles wide puts down two and a half inches of rain right over there, and you get nothing here. Never and that's the, it. So are we going back to the
1: answer is that we need to invade Canada? I mean, is that what we're <laughs> kind of talking about? But we're going to do it in July. We're going to do it in July.
2: <laughs> Finally, I'm going to go to Alberta in July instead of going there in February. <laughs> Boy, it'd be nice. I, I've been in Canada once in summer, and I'll be honest with you. it There is a mosquito issue where I was, mm-hmm. but the weather was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I would not go back to that same place in January, not a chance because minus 30 is just every day there at times.
1: <laughs> I keep saying Alberta, I should also say I've worked in New Brunswick, says my buddy in the potato business might be listening to this. And uh, yeah, it, was February, <laughs> it was February and this is no kidding. Speaking of weather, I told my wife when I got home, I said, in about five years, I'd like to not be going in February to these places that I almost get killed. And she says, what? And I said, Well, it wasn't a deer on this one. This one, it was, um, (laughs) this one was, I was on two lane highway in new Brunswick and I pulled over so I could check my phone. Cause you know, I'm traveling for business as you and I do, and I want to be safe. My problem is I pulled into a driveway that was sloping and I started sliding and I oh, almost no. led into a Canadian guy's house. I was about a foot from his front door with a rental car, putting it forward and reverse, rocking it, which you learned if you were, grew up in this part of the world. And the guy comes I said, dude, I'm not trying to hit your house. <laughs> I'm trying to get out <laughs> <your driver." laughs> All right. His name's Eric Snodgrass. Great discussion on climate, on weather, on what it's doing to agriculture and what we're doing right in agriculture, what we're going to see in the future. Uh, if anybody wants to look you up, how do they find you?
2: Yeah, you know what? I'll give you my email address, eric.snodgrass at Nutrient.com. Uh, great resource. And uh, I can even get folks that want to contact me and uh, daily weather reports I produce that Nutrient puts out for free. Give you that national perspective. Keep an eye on the growing season. So uh, just hit me up with an email and we'll get you some info.
1: And you know what? I uh, I cross paths with this guy on on the circuit sometimes, and, uh, and he does a really good job of, uh, of putting out uh, the weather stuff and and climatological big picture stuff. So anyway, his name is Eric Snodgrass, at nutrient.com if you want to reach out to him. My name is Damian Mason. This episode is brought to you by Land Trust and by Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is a software company founded by my buddy Nick Horobut. What you're basically talking about is a software software that is geared to agriculture. You've got money to manage. You know what? It's past past time. You get past using the the corn, the seed corn tablet in your glove box. All right. Use use my friends at Harvest Profit. Use their product to help you make your agricultural enterprise more profitable. Go to HarvestProfit.com and see what they can give you. Free 14-day trial after all. All right. Till next time, Eric, I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's like almost like two old farmers in the coffee shop talking weather, but on a higher (laughs) level, you know, uh, anyway, thanks for being here. Yep. Thank you. Till next time. It's the business of agriculture.
0: Thank you for tuning into the business of agriculture podcast sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. You maintain 100% control of access and activities, and you set the rules. There's no cost or obligation when you list, and the next 10 Business of Agriculture listeners who go to LandTrust.com slash BOA are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000.